Turning our attention to our text for this morning, Matthew recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, pins the following words. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then our text for this morning, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. Four main points on your outline this morning. Let me go ahead and give them to you on the front end. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. You'll always listen better if you do. Number one on your outline is this. Persecution is an unavoidable theme in the New Testament. Persecution is an unavoidable theme in the New Testament. We'll talk about that first. Secondly, persecution is the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. That's what persecution is. It's the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Number three on your outline, blessing only comes to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Only to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then four at the bottom of your outline, just the question, do we have any familiarity with this persecution? Do we know anything of the persecution Jesus speaks of? Number one in your outline, persecution is an unavoidable theme in the New Testament. But when you think about it, persecution is or can be the opposite of what one would expect. I mean, after all, is it not reasonable to expect that men and women who are poor in spirit, who mourn for their sin, who live lives that are gracious and meek, who who long for God's righteousness, who show mercy to others, who are pure in heart and who seek to live at peace with God and with man, don't you think or wouldn't you expect that those are the very people in which the world would welcome with open arms? Jesus says not so. It is not so. I mean, after all, are are not these the very men and women which the world needs? The world in which we live assumes that it will welcome Christians with open arms. That is until it meets the genuine article. The world in which we live assumes that it will welcome Christians who exhibit all the qualities that Jesus has enumerated in the Beatitudes until it meets the genuine article. That's where the rubber meets the road, friends. Why is that? Why is it until they meet the genuine article? Well, it's because a true follower of Christ stands as a living rebuke to the world. A Christian, literally, a little Christ, a follower of Christ, stands as a living rebuke to the world in which we live, as, as, in, as an incarnate conscience, as a light that exposes darkness. And we know the world hates that because the world loves 
darkness, John chapter 3. Friends, persecution isn't just a possibility, it's assured for those who seek to follow Christ. If you haven't suffered uh, under the hand of persecution, it's not if, it's when. It's not if, it's when. If we are truly seeking to follow Christ, if we are bearing more and more resemblance, more and more likeness, more and more of Christ's life incarnate here on earth, we will be persecuted. It's just a matter of time. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness in which they crave. Friends, mark it down as true. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness in which they crave. It's not a possibility. It's assured to those who follow Christ. And friends, we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer persecution. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter reminds us, as a matter of fact, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Interesting, that's the exact same response that Jesus gave us here in verse 11 and 12. Why is that? Because Peter would have been standing in the presence of this very sermon when it was uttered from Jesus' lips. What is Peter doing in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he says rejoice? Rejoice when you are persecuted. Rejoice when you're suffering. Don't think it's a strange thing. Why does Peter repeat that? Because he was there when Jesus said it. And because he experienced it. He experienced it. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Friends, it is strange if it's not happening to you. It ought to be a strange thing if the world embraces us as its own because Jesus says, you are not of this world. If you were of this world, the world would love you. But as it is, you are not of this world. It ought to be a strange thing if we do not encounter opposition if we do not encounter resistance in our pursuit of following Jesus and in our love for and longing for his righteousness. We shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes, but rather surprised when it doesn't come. Remember, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Matter of fact, Jesus tells us this, uh, Luke's gospel, Luke pens these words in Luke chapter 6, Jesus was speaking, Luke recorded it, Jesus warns us saying, woe to you when all people speak well of you. You see, the false prophets were oftentimes spoken well of. Why? Because false prophets tell you what your itching ears want to hear. There is no opposition. They don't stand as a living rebuke. They aren't light in a dark world. And so they're spoken well of. And Jesus says, woe to you, woe to you, if you're always spoken well of. Something's not right, if that's the case. Paul wasn't a stranger to persecution. Paul said this, he said, we labor working with our own hands when we're reviled. Same word that Jesus uses here at the close of the Beatitudes, when we're reviled. We bless when we're persecuted, Paul says, we endure. 1 Corinthians 4.12 Later, he went on and he said, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken by God. We're struck down, but we're, we're not destroyed. Persecuted, yes. Destroyed, no. 2 Corinthians 4, 9. 
And then there's the all-sweeping, all-encompassing statement that Paul made to, Tim- to, to Timothy when he said, Indeed, all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. Friends, you can take that to the bank. Its deposit is sure. All who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. You see, the world esteems people who are good. The world esteems people who are noble. The world esteems people who are courageous. But seeking to honor and please and obey God because of who he is, not just because you desire to be a good citizen or a good person, that will get you in trouble. You can talk all day long about the evils of our age. You can talk all day long about things like pornography and family disintegration and a lack of values and drinking and drugs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can talk about all those things and you'll be tolerated. As a matter of fact, you may be honored in certain circles. But the moment that you bring the name of Christ into the conversation... The moment that you exalt the grace of God, the moment that you assert that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the moment that you tell people that outside of Jesus Christ they are under the exposed wrath of God, in that moment you will certainly suffer reproach. You can talk about all the ills of the world all day long. The moment that you bring Jesus Christ into the conversation, you'll experience opposition. So stop and think for a moment. Is Christ or isn't Christ ever on our tongue? Are our words, just as we go about daily life, from the time we rise to our lying down at night, in our comings and goings, in the workplace, in the home, amongst our neighbors, in the gas station, in the grocery store, And everywhere in between is Jesus Christ on our lips, is the gospel on our lips. If not, you need not fear persecution. If not, you need not fear opposition. But if Jesus is ever present on our lips, there will be trouble in this world for you and for me. How are we to understand Jesus' teaching here? The word persecuted here in the Greek, it's the word dioko, and it carries the idea of of putting to flight, making someone run, dispersing, chasing after someone with malignity, harassing someone, or even seeking to trouble. That's the idea there. When you read persecuted, it's putting to flight, making someone run, harassing, seeking to trouble. Jesus tells us in verse 11 that persecution can come in the form of actions meant to hurt, Or it can come in words that are also meant to hurt. Persecution can come in actions. Persecution can come in words. Maybe you've experienced one or both. In the New Testament, the word persecution is most often used of inflicting suffering on those who hold beliefs that the establishment or the world at large frowns upon. Again, you can talk about the ills of the world all day long. Even non-Christians talk about the ills of the world. But the world at large, the establishment at large, frowns upon your bringing Jesus into the conversation. That's where the rubber meets the road, friends. That's where opposition is born. See, being righteous or or practicing righteousness, which is what Jesus tells us that we are persecuted for, really just means living like Jesus. 
When Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, what he's saying is, blessed are you who are persecuted for living like me, for seeking to be like me. And you say, well, what is the, the, the me that I'm supposed to be? Look at the preceding seven Beatitudes. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 9. Jesus says, if you seek to live that out, which is essentially seeking to be like me, you'll be persecuted. That's what it means to practice righteousness. See, Jesus in verse 11, if you just let your eyes fall there, he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted on my account. The world doesn't persecute good people. The world persecutes Christ-like people. It's a major difference. Why is this? Because like Christ, when his followers live righteously, they live in direct contradiction to what the world affirms. They live in direct contradiction to what the world esteems and loves and longs for and worships. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. If you're seeking to live for righteousness... You're following hard after Jesus' righteousness, then you are setting yourself up to live in direct opposition to what the world loves, affirms, esteems, and worships. You're an anomaly. And praise God so. John writes, he says, This is the verdict, friends. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. But you, you are light. And what you do is you expose what is done in darkness. The world hates that. The world doesn't want to be exposed. The world doesn't want to see their actions classified as sin. They would rather classify their actions as a mistake. The world hates light because it exposes unrighteousness. It calls sin, sin. It exposes what darkness tries to hide. Interestingly enough, then we'll be here in just a few short weeks. What does Jesus call you, my friends? Light. That's what he calls us. He calls us light. He says, you're the light of the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which if you haven't gotten a copy of his commentary yet, let me lovingly encourage you again. Get a copy of Martin Lloyd-Jones' notes on the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be highly edified, I promise. This is what Jones notes here. He says, and I agree, speaking about this eighth beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says this is quite possibly the most searching of all the beatitudes because it forces us to consider how much resemblance we bear to Jesus Christ. In other words, if we're not being persecuted, if we're not suffering for our faith, the question we must ask is, how much resemblance do I bear to Christ? Jesus reminds us, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. It would embrace you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. See, we must be careful, friends, that our ideas about Christ and our ideas about the Christian life, our living of the Christian life, is not such that the natural man, is not such that the lost man can easily admire or applaud your life. If you're easily admired or easily applauded, it is possible 
that our lives look more like the world than they do look like Christ. A true Christian is like his Lord. A true Christian is like his master or her master. And if they didn't praise Christ, they shouldn't praise and applaud us either. Now, we'll talk here in just a few minutes. We're, we're not to go drum up persecution. Jesus never tells us that in the New Testament. We're not to go make persecution happen. It will happen on its own if you seek to live righteously. But if the world didn't praise our Lord and master, if they didn't applaud his life, then they shouldn't applaud and congratulate or praise ours either. Friends, since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, then we should conclude that the condition of being despised, the condition of being rejected, the condition of being persecuted, slandered, is a normal mark of Christian discipleship. Again, let me take you back to Peter's words. Do not consider it a strange thing. We should consider persecution, we should consider slander, we should consider opposition part and parcel of living the Christian life, the godly Christian life. Again, we're not trying to drum any of this up. We're just seeking to live as our master lives. Or as John said it, to walk as he walked. Number two on your outline. Persecution, what is it? Well, it's the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Okay, persecution is an unavoidable theme in the New Testament. And you can scarcely turn a handful of pages without seeing a character in the New Testament or our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate example of persecution. And so we asked him, well, what is it? Why does it happen again? Well, it's an irreconcilable clash between two value systems that are diametrically opposed to one another. You see, the Christian's been given a new heart and has been given the indwelling spirit. If you know Christ here this morning, if you are in him, then you've been given a new heart. And the spirit dwells within you, a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come, Ephesians 1, 13. And so nothing about our lives then should be the same as they were prior to our conversion. In other words, your life should look markedly different now in Christ than it did before you were in Christ. You see, we have a new master and his values and his standards and his priorities, which have subsequently become our standards and our values and our priorities stand in direct conflict to the prevailing values of the world. And so what I want to do is I want you to see this clash of value systems between the world and the believer. And here's how I want you to see it. I just want us to briefly walk back through the Beatitudes. And I want us to talk about, or I want you to see, rather, what the world values and what Jesus tells the Christian that he or she is to value. As we look at the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we are to value. Poverty of spirit, brokenness before God, understanding that there is nothing within us to intrinsically commend us to a thrice holy God. I'm a spiritual beggar. I need his mercy and his grace. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer. I only receive what he gives. That's what Jesus tells the Christian that they are to value. But what does the world value? The world doesn't value poverty of spirit. The world values self-sufficiency. And so there is a clash. There's a clash between the world's value of self-sufficiency. I don't need your God. I can do it all by myself. And what Jesus tells the Christian, 
to be like and to long for, which is to be poor in spirit, to be that beggar before God, simply receiving his mercy and grace. You see the conflict there? Look at the second beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, Jesus tells us that we should be broken, not only over our own sin, but also the sin of the world. But what does the world value? It doesn't value brokenness. It doesn't value humility. It values shamelessness. Do you see the opposition? Don't tell me to be broken before your God. I'm shameless. Don't call my actions sin. Don't tell me that my actions provoke a holy God. Shamelessness is what the world values. Look at the third beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I mean, what does the world value? It it values the immediate, pleasure in the moment. It longs for that which it can immediately touch and taste. But Jesus says, hunger and thirst for my righteousness. And you'll receive it. You'll be satisfied here, but great is your reward in heaven when you experience all of my righteousness without the encumbrance of sin. I skipped one there. Look at the the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek is the humble one, the one who refuses to be self-effacing. But what does the world admire? What does the world applaud? What does the world value? Well, the world values strength and pride, not meekness. The world says that meekness is weakness. Jesus says, no, meekness is power under control. How about the merciful? The Christian who desires to be merciful, who feels compassion for those who are burdened under the weight of sin, who who refuses to be vindictive, who refuses to harbor bitterness, and who seeks to quickly forgive their offender. That's what it means to be meek. That's the value system of the Christian. But what does the world, which is diametrically opposed, value? Well, the world values indifference. Indifference. The world values indifference. The Christian values to be merciful, to be compassionate, to seek to forgive your offender, not just to be indifferent. How about the Christian who seeks to be pure in heart, to maintain a transparent, clean, single-minded focus on God? That's the antithesis, by the way. To be pure in heart is the antithesis of the world's motto, which is, if it feels good, do it. I'm not hurting anyone, therefore I have license. That's what the world says. The Christian desires to purify himself or purify herself. Matter of fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we desire holiness. We desire purity. We desire transparency. That's what we value. It's our value system. But what does the world value? It values pleasure. Pleasure. And then lastly, the Christian seeks to be a peacemaker. And this is awkward and it's discomforting because it won't settle like the world oftentimes settle for a cheaper counterfeit peace. We value being a peacemaker, not a peace breaker and not a peace faker, but a peacemaker. 
What does the world value? The world values standing your ground. You see, friends, I mean, we can walk through each of these beatitudes and we can see the value system of the new believer, of the one who is in Christ. And then we see the, the contradictory value system of the world. That's where persecution comes. It comes because there is an irreconcilable value system between the lost world and the believer that's been given a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, the foundational reason that the Christian experiences persecution is that he or she longs to be like Christ. That he or she now loves and longs for Jesus' values, Jesus' priorities, and Jesus' standards. Again, this is the whole point that Jesus is making in verse 11. Let your eyes drop down. We'll be there next week when Jesus says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted on my account. On my account. Everyone who lives like Jesus can expect, at some point, persecution. Well, we know the persecution comes in various forms. Drop your eyes back down to verse 11 for a moment. I'll just say a few brief things about it. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you. That's a form of persecution. When others persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you, that's persecution falsely on my account. Similarly, in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. So excluding from can be a form of persecution. When they revile you and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You see, we mentioned already that the word persecuted in verse 10 has the idea of pursuing or chasing. To, to, to drive away, to drive out. But the reviling that we see in verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you. To revile, uh, literally, the, 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 the Greek word is to, to cast your teeth into or to hurl insults at. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others sink their teeth into you or hurl insert, insults at you falsely because of me. Persecution can come in various forms, my friend. Persecution can most certainly go to physical extremes at times. A survey of church history would most certainly reveal this. But most often it comes in the form of verbal assaults. Sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's whispered, sometimes it's by way of innuendo. Some persecution is more subtle in nature. It could come in the form of a faithful employee who's given 20 years of hard, dedicated service to his company, being passed over for a position because of his uncompromising, God-honoring ethics, because he refuses to lie, because he refuses to cheat, or because she refuses to do the same. Persecution can come in that form. Persecution can come to the student who's ostracized because he won't let his or her friends cheat. Persecution can come to the stay-at-home mom who's considered dull by her neighbors because she doesn't delight in the gossip that they engage in. And so they talk about her behind her back. She's ostracized. She's left out of things. She's not invited to things. She's dull. And not only is she dull, but we feel convicted when she's in our presence because she looks like Jesus. Oftentimes, persecution comes in hurtful, slanderous remarks that are made behind a Christian's back. Sometimes we find out about it later. Sometimes we don't. But let me ask you this question, friends. Consider this by way of some application. Are you willing to stand alone in order to maintain a clear conscience before God? 
Are you willing to stand alone for righteousness in order to maintain a clear conscience before God? Or will you just jump into the river and float downstream with the rest of the world, loving what it loves, laughing what it laughs at, engaging in what it engages, looking at what it looks at, entertaining ourselves the way it entertains itself, going where it goes, doing what it does, clicking where it clicks, speaking like it speaks. We could go on and on and on. To not do those things, not just because we want to be a good citizen, but to not do those things, to not engage in those activities because the pleasure of Christ is our treasure will bring opposition into your life. Some persecution, on the other hand, is very severe and very painful. When you think about it, Abel was persecuted by his brother Cain. Moses was persecuted not only by Pharaoh, but by his own people. Joseph was persecuted by his brothers. David was persecuted by Saul. The prophet Jeremiah was persecuted. Daniel was persecuted. Paul was persecuted. Immensely, we see that in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, every apostle, with the exception of John, who died in exile on the island of Patmos, died as a result of persecution. And then we see the ultimate example of persecution in our Lord Jesus hanging on a Roman cross, the innocent for the guilty. Persecution fills the pages of your Bible, friends. Don't think it a strange thing when this fiery trial comes upon you. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you are in great company. Not perfect company. Great company. Those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake that have gone before us, they weren't perfect. And we aren't either. But we're in great company. We're in great company. Thinking about Jesus... There he was, all his utter, absolute perfection. Never was anyone so gentle, so meek, so kind, so mild, but the world hated him. Matter of fact, Jesus said of his own people, they received me not. And then as we look down the corridors at Christian history, Rome relentlessly has tried to extinguish Christianity through fiery trials. Church fathers and the reformers and countless other missionaries have been persecuted and have endured unspeakable tortures, including being beaten, starved, drowned, and burned at the stake. Why? Because they hungered and thirsted for righteousness and seek to live for the righteousness of Christ. Friends, I would encourage you, if you've, if you've not read uh, very deep in, in missionary biographies, read some missionary biographies. Read of men like Hudson Taylor who endured severe persecution. Read of some of the, the, the reformers like John Huss and others who were burned at the stake and who sung hymns as the flames lapped their flesh. You ever wonder what it means to rejoice and be glad? I'm challenged in my own heart and my own mind to think if I were tied there to the stake with the stench of flesh filling nostrils, would I be able to rejoice in that moment? And to be glad. Number three on your outline, blessing only comes to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We need to be clear about the fact that this beatitude doesn't just say, blessed are the persecuted, period. 
There's no punctuation after persecution. Jesus goes on, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But there are those who would interpret this text, blessed are those who are persecuted. And there are many who delude themselves into thinking that any time they experience any hostility, any time they experience any conflict, that they are bearing the reproach for Christ. That's not necessarily the case. Jesus' blessing is restricted to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, the believers described in this verse are those who are persecuted because they are, again, determined to live as Jesus lived, determined to walk as he walked. Let me just share with you a few thoughts here. This isn't in your outline. These are freebies. You can write them down if you so wish. But but let me just share with you a few things here that, that blessing isn't promised for. Blessing is promised for those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not just those who are persecuted for being objectionable. There are plenty who suffer persecution because they live objectionable lives. They're challenging, difficult people. Joseph Bailey, a Christian author and publisher who passed away in the mid-'80s, once wrote a satirical short story in which he entitled The Gospel Blimp. And the storyline follows George and Ethel who are concerned about the salvation of their next-door neighbors, but they don't know how to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so during an evening get-together, George and Ethel, along with some of their Christian friends, their neighbors, they decided that they would would captivate their audience, they would captivate their other neighbors, those non-Christian neighbors, with a gospel blimp. Why not use a blimp to proclaim the gospel to the unchurched citizens of Middletown, they thought to themselves. And so the group of friends here, this group of Christian friends, they incorporate, they buy, they buy a used blimp, they hire a pilot, and they commence to evangelize their hometown by towing banners behind a blimp with Bible verses on them. Again, this all falls under the category of persecution isn't promised to those who are blessed for just being objectionable. Okay? Putting the story together in your mind now, they have this great idea. They're going to fly a gospel blimp over their town, and they're going to evangelize them that that way. As a means of being more direct with their message, they also drop tracks down from the blimp, which they called gospel bombs, into the backyard of of their neighbors. And at first, the townspeople put up with this intrusion, but their toleration quickly turned to hostility when the blimp's owners installed loudspeakers on the Bible balloon and began inundating people with gospel broadcasts. The locals were frustrated, and the local paper ran this editorial. Again, this is satire, by the way. For some weeks now, our metropolis has been treated to the spectacle of a blimp and advertising sign attached to the rear. This sign does not plug cigarettes or a bottled beverage, but the religious beliefs of a particular group in our midst. The people of our city are notably broad-minded and have good-natured, they have submitted to this attempt to be proselytized. But last night, a new refinement, some would say a debasement, was introduced. We refer, of course, to the airborne soundtrack, the invader of our privacy, that rackish destroyer of our communal peace. That night, their gospel blimp was sabotaged by some people in the city, and the Christians saw this, you guessed it, as persecution. Blessing isn't promised to those who are persecuted just for being objectionable. Blessing isn't promised to those who are persecuted for having a martyr spirit. I'm reminded of a gentleman that used to come every year to my college campus 
And he would engage students in spiritual arguments. He would stand in the free speech area with his Bible, and he typically had a few other guys around him. And he would antagonize students. He would call them names. He would make them look foolish. He would tell them they're just a bunch of adulterers and fornicators and and boozers. and, And he just antagonized them over and over and over. He seemed intent on stirring up anger in the students. Most of them lost, by the way. And when they became aggressive toward him, when they lashed out or when they hollered back or when they spoke back at him, he called it persecution for the sake of Christ. He was antagonizing them. And the sad thing, as I witnessed this, is that there were some lost people, some non-believers that would leave from this event and they would say, if that's what Christianity's like, I don't want any part of it. It's a bad example. This guy just had a martyr spirit doing anything to drum up some persecution, thinking he was being obedient by doing so. Again, friends, you don't have to go drum it up. Blessing also isn't promised to those who are persecuted for just being noble or self-sacrificing. There are certainly many people who have made great sacrifices, many great lost people who have made sacrifices in life. Some have given up great careers. Some have given up great wealth. Others have sacrificed their own lives. You see, by and large, the world blesses and admires those who are self-sacrificial. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just those who who live self-sacrificial life. That's, That's not what blessing is pronounced for. You see, our world oftentimes praises those who help others. As a matter of fact, this makes up a large portion of our daytime talk shows. But Jesus isn't just blessing the self-sacrificing, he's blessing the righteous. Even lost people can be self-sacrificing. Jesus' blessing is pronounced on those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, how does God use persecution in the life of a believer? I didn't give you these fill-ins, so here they are. How does God use persecution in the life of a believer? Let me give you just a few thoughts here. Number one, persecution is oftentimes used by God to conform us into the image of Christ. Persecution isn't comfortable, but conformity to Christ isn't promised to be a comfortable road. God oftentimes, in his wisdom, uses persecution. He uses opposition to our walk after he walked to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Number two, persecution. God uses it to develop our character. He uses it to to refine us, to develop our character. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, there's that R word again. Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God uses persecution to develop our character. Third, God uses persecution to keep us from getting too comfortable in this sin-riddled world. Friends, it is all too easy to settle in and to snuggle up to the ways and the value systems of this world. And so what God does oftentimes in his wisdom, what God oftentimes does in his sovereignty, is he uses persecution, he uses opposition to our faith to keep us detached from, to keep our roots from being too firmly attached to this world. Remember, we're not of this world. We ought to be aliens and strangers. We're citizens of another world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await our Savior from there. 
David said it this way in Psalm 119. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. God uses persecution oftentimes to keep us from getting too comfortable in this sin-riddled world. Number four, persecution is oftentimes used by God to advance the gospel. God oftentimes uses opposition. God oftentimes uses persecution in your life to advance the gospel. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is really for Christ. Let me ask you this, friends. Are you willing to go to jail for Jesus? And I don't mean like a cute bumper sticker, willing to go to jail for Jesus. Are you really willing to go to jail for Jesus? Are you willing to stand so firmly on the truth of God's revealed, inspired, and scripturated word that you're willing to be incarcerated for it? Number five, persecution brings us into closer fellowship with God. Think about Paul and others who have sat in musty dungeons And in that moment, in those moments, their fellowship with God just surges. Because in that moment, he's all you have. And then sixth and lastly, persecution in a small measure helps us to appreciate the sufferings of Christ. In a small measure, it helps us to appreciate something of the persecution that our master endured for us. And so let me leave you with this question, friends, as we bring it to a close. Do you have any familiarity with this persecution? Again, we're never called to drum it up. We're not called to seek it out. We're called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and in doing so, it will come. If this is the case, if you are seeking first his righteousness, then you can expect ongoing various degrees of persecution in your life. On the other hand, if you're never faced with persecution, and I, I evaluate my own self here, if we're never evaluate or never faced with persecution, then it well may mean that we either resemble very little of Jesus Christ or even possibly that we don't know him. If we're never faced with persecution then it very well may mean that we resemble very little of our Jesus and need to be growing and changing, for which there is great hope, my friends. Or it could mean that we don't know him at all. As long as the outside world has reason to believe that we aren't Christians, in other words, if we, if we who Jesus called lights, hide it under a bushel, as long as the world has, has no reason to believe that we're Christians, at least obedient, righteous Christians, then we need not worry about persecution. But if you seek to live Jesus out loud to a lost and dying world, you can expect it. You can expect it. You see, when we go to churches that are 100% filled with Christians, when we attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, when we attend Christian schools, when we exercise with believers, garden with churchgoers, golf with believers, we effectively seal ourselves off from all contact with the lost world and therefore any persecution. Friends, may it not be so. If we are not in regular contact with the lost world, something is wrong. Not laughing at what they laugh at, not agreeing with what they agree with, not going where they go, looking what they look at, clicking on what they click on, speaking like they speak. 
But if we do not have regular ongoing contact with the lost for the sake of sharing the saving message of the gospel with them, that they can see exemplified in our lives, something is wrong. Something's wrong. This ought not be. This ought not be. Jesus says, great is your reward. We're going to save this for next week when we talk about the response. What's the response we're to have? We're to rejoice. And there's a great reward. Great is your reward in heaven. It's the word palus. It means immensely great. God won't permit what is done for his glory to go unrewarded, my friends. All right? He's going to reward us. Paul says it this way, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To Timothy he wrote, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and there is henceforth laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Friends, there's a great reward, and we'll talk about it more next week. Have you counted the cost, brothers and sisters? You have a determination to follow Jesus no matter what. Are you willing to stand alone? Stand fast, be of good cheer. The reward is out of this world.